0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So, we're in this series in the book of Revelation. Last, and I'm doing basically a, a chapter a week. And uh, last week, we, we mostly got chapter six done. And I'm just going to finish off chapter six and then get into chapter uh, seven today. But just to give you a little context again, so we don't forget, it's very easy in Revelation and in a message series like this to just kind of go week to week, and each week is a brand new topic when that is not how the book is written. There was no chapter headings in the original. It's really important that we keep these things together, otherwise they literally lose their meaning. If we put stops and then start fresh every week and in every chapter, literally we get this is part of the problem, why so many wacky interpretations have come up with the book of Revelation, and as we'll see today as we get into the 144,000, that is one of those passages in particular that many wacky interpretations over the years have been, have been born. Um, so just a reminder of the context. This is all part of the same vision. Chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. They're usually all divvied up. A lot of people put 4 and 5 together, but then they divvy up. 6 and 7 are all separate things. Four, five, six, and seven are all part of the same vision. The same thing is going on. So chapter four, God, uh, John gets a revelation of God sitting on his throne, and he's awesome. And in chapter five, more information, we see God holding a scroll. And this scroll represents, you know, God's uh, battle plan for earth to bring his kingdom to earth and conquer Satan's kingdom. Alright, that's chapter 5, and then we saw that the scroll was sealed with seven seals. Okay, and then chapter 6, we see Jesus the Lamb, the only one who's worthy, breaking those seals in order to open up the scroll. And then last week, we looked at the first uh, five seals, and today we'll pick up from there on the sixth seal. But all of this, part of the same vision, John is in heaven, the seals are being broken so that God's kingdom can come onto the earth. And so we read seal 6 here. Uh, Verses 12 through 17, when he, that's Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So John is is looking ahead, this is a day that is coming. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. We see this this day of of wrath, and the people of the earth are trembling, and the earth is shaking, and the sun goes dark, and the moon goes dark. And you say, what day is this describing? Is it just a random day? Is it just some day? Or is it a very special day? And this seal six that we're looking at here is describing a very specific day that is described in many places in Scripture. The Old Testament prophets called it the day of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, if there's one thing the Old Testament prophets point towards, okay? Ultimately, you know, they prophesied a number of different things, but people think of the Old Testament prophets as prophesying a variety of things. Really, they didn't prophesy a variety of things. Ultimately, they pointed towards one thing, which is this day they called the day of the Lord, a day when God would come back to earth, the earth would shake, the sun would go dark, all this sort of stuff. In fact, that's how I know that's how we know that Revelation 6 is talking about this day of the Lord. It's got all of the Old Testament prophetic descriptions in it. A great earthquake, the sun becomes black, the moon becomes like blood or, or becomes dark, and stars fall to earth, which again, always remember when you're reading the Bible, uh, you know, John is, is writing in the first century. He does not have a modern understanding of astronomy or physics or the universe, okay? So when he says the stars fall to earth, obviously... Stars cannot fall to earth. He does not know that they are massive, boiling, you know, balls of gas. Okay? He thinks of them as, as smaller than the earth. But he's seeing something, some kind of a, an intense meteor shower or something, and then the night sky goes dark. And that's just his way of describing it. The stars fell to earth. But this is throughout the scripture. And I, I want to show you a couple places. This exact description, basically is found throughout the Old Testament prophets. And I want to just show you a couple of places. I could show you a number. But I want to open your eyes up to this day of the Lord thing, which was the primary thing the Old Testament prophets were pointing towards. All right? So for one example, we'll go to Joel chapter 2. And the prophet Joel prophesied this. He said, blow a trumpet in Zion. That's in Israel. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. So he's looking ahead. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, the day of the Lord, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their life has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Let me skip ahead a few verses, and I want you to see the descriptions of this awesome day. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Let me skip ahead a little bit in that same chapter. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, I could show you passage after passage. This is what the Old Testament prophets pointed towards. An awesome day in the future, a real day. On a calendar somewhere in heaven. When God returns to earth and he is so powerful, it's not that he's putting on a light show. It's just this is him in his glory. And the the stars go out, and the sun goes out, and the earth shakes. It's an awesome and terrible day. Isaiah 13, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And on and on, we can look at these. The Old Testament prophets were looking forward to a day. Primarily, their prophecies were pointing to a day when God would return to earth. Now, very interestingly enough, last week we looked at Matthew 24, a very important New Testament passage where Jesus is answering the disciples' questions What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And, we, and I talked about how Matthew 24, whenever in the book of Revelation you feel overwhelmed by the imagery or by the information and you think it's too complicated to understand, I want you to always to go back to Matthew 24 and remember that it's actually simple to understand. God's end time plan is very simple. First, there will be this lengthy period of birth pains, which we're in right now, persecution and disease and wars and famine and all these things. And then the gospel will go to all nations, and there will be this terrible time of tribulation. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus talks about his return. And what's amazing to me is he describes the day of his return exactly the way the Old Testament prophets describe the day of the Lord. And that's how we know that Jesus, the day when Jesus returns, his second coming, is the day of the Lord that the Old Testament prophets were always pointing to. And I'll show you this in Matthew 24. Again, this is all over scripture. Matthew 24, verse 29, you're going to see this day of the Lord imagery immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. to the other. So Jesus says, that day when I'm coming back is the day the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be this shaking and the sky itself is going to go dark because he's that awesome. Again, this is not him having to put on a show. This is just Jesus in his glory and little tiny earth can barely barely contain him. Now some of you might be sitting there and you might be going, boy, I always was told that Jesus' second coming was something I should look forward to. This doesn't look like something I I look forward to. This looks like something I should be scared of. I mean, more of the descriptions of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and even a little bit in Matthew 24 there, more looks like it's terrible, more than that it's fantastic. Okay? And one of the things you have to understand is when the Bible describes this day, it's described often the prophecies are coming from the perspective of the wicked. But when we look at it, it's not meant to be a terrifying day for God's sheep. See, remember in Revelation, something that we see in Revelation is that Jesus is both a lion and a lamb, and he's both things. On the day of his return, he will be both a lion and a lamb. He will be like a lion to those, to the wicked who have rejected him, and he will be a lamb to those who have, who have received him and who love him. I'll show you one passage here, and then we'll go back to Revelation 6, but Luke chapter 21 Jesus talks about this, and I want to show you that we are not to be afraid. Luke 21, verses 25 to 28, says this, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People faint, again, you can see some of this day of the Lord stuff happening again. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Like, we're actually, do do you realize we're actually going to see this someday? This is a real day. And on that day, I just wonder how many things that matter to us right now in this life are going to matter on that day. Like a day's coming and those things, you're so bitter, you have unforgiveness against people in your life and you're so bitter because they did this or that. And it feels like such a big deal to you. On the day when the Son of Man returns in glory, are those things going to feel like a big deal to you? Are those things that you're wrestling with, are those sins that you're hanging on to that just feel like, I can't let this go? Is that going to be your feeling when you see the Son of Man return in glory, with power and glory? But anyway, it goes on. And it says this, Jesus' point here is is that, yes, the wicked are going to be terrified, but I want you to see what he says to his people, his sheep. He says this, now, When these things begin to take place, straighten up. The wicked are cowering and terrified, not knowing what's happening. But Jesus says it's the opposite with his sheep. Straighten up and raise your heads. In other words, he's saying, look up because your redemption is drawing near. It reminds me of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1 when Jesus goes back to heaven, right? And we've talked about this before and the disciples are all standing there looking in heaven. And then uh, the angel comes along and says, what are you looking up at? And they're like, do you think we're looking up at, right? I mean, Jesus just went to heaven and we're we're watching him, right? But it's going to be the same thing when he comes back. Jesus says, straighten up. You don't have to be terrified. When the earth starts to shake and the sun goes dark on that day when Jesus returns, we're going to look up and we're going to realize our Redeemer is coming back. And if, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's not meant to be a scary day for you. Now, it may be a little scary for some Christians if Jesus comes back to find you in the middle of something you shouldn't be in the middle of. You might want to cut off that adulterous affair you're maybe being tempted by. Or maybe involved in because you don't want him to come back and find you in something like that you don't want him to come back and find you mistreating people or cheating on something you don't want him to find you in the midst of something but if he comes back we're all weak none of us is perfect the point is you don't none of us is going to be anywhere close to perfect and you could be struggling with all kinds of things when jesus returns but if your desire is jesus i want you and you're repenting and you're and you're seeking after him as best you know in your weakness jesus return is not to be a day of fear for you straighten up and raise your heads. So now if we go back to Revelation 6, we're going to see here that the focus is on the wicked, not on believers, and that's important for several reasons, which we will see in just a moment, but let's look at it again. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked up and behold there was a great earthquake, verse give me hand to verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, John's just basically nailing every class of person in the Roman world. And he says they're all going to be cowering. Now, when we look at kind of that older terminology, maybe certain things don't come to your mind, but I want you to think about this. This is true in our day too. On On that awesome day of the Lord when Jesus returns, and it's going to happen. Are you ready for that day? The Bible warns us about it often. Are you ready for that day? But on that day, the most powerful people in our culture and in our world are going to be physically terrified. Prime ministers and presidents and kings, but not just them. TV sitcom stars and movie stars and musicians and reporters and and incredibly wealthy businessmen and billionaires and oil sheiks and everyone who has rejected Jesus on that day. And they might look like the kind of people now who would never be afraid of anything. They might look like they have the whole world at their fingertips. They might look like they have everything together. But on that day, they literally will be physically terrified. Their knees will be knocking. They'll be hiding under their desks. They'll be shaking with physical fear on the day when Jesus returns. Now, one of the reasons I think the Bible brings that up is that I think, isn't it true that sometimes as Christians we envy people in the world who don't know Jesus. I hear this from time to time. I, and I know what this is. We all know this, right? But I talk to people sometimes and they're like, they're going through terrible things. And, and one of the questions that comes up, and it's not bad to ask the question. If the question's there, bring it up. God's not afraid of any question. But isn't this the question in our hearts sometimes? Why do I have to have whatever? Cancer, problems with my kids, problems with this, problems with my finances. And I've followed Jesus all my life, but my neighbors hate Jesus, and live ungodly lives, and they've got it easy. Their health is good, their everything is good. Have you ever felt like that? And we, and we envy those who don't know Jesus. You know, on the day of the Lord, you're not going to envy anyone who doesn't know Jesus. You might envy, sometimes I think we look at these people, whether it be, you know, popular people in culture, you know, um, could be a musician, could be, you know, sports star, an athlete, You know, I saw, I I re-watched a a short clip this last week, an interview that I had seen some years ago on 60 Minutes with uh, Tom Brady, who's, you know, one of the most, you know, famous athletes here in North America, one of the most famous quarterbacks uh, in football. And uh, they did an interview with him. This was a few years ago, and uh, he'd won a few championships already by that point. And they were, and basically he's on top of the world. So the 60 Minutes interview, uh, they're, they're talking about this. So... You know, you're famous. You know, everywhere he goes, people want his signature. And he's got, you know, uh, millions of fans. And, and he's got millions and millions of dollars. And he's got success. He's got championships. He's got all these things. So the interview is asking him what it's like to have everything. Like, it must be an amazing life. And interesting thing that uh, Brady says in this interview. And I went back and watched just that little clip again this, this week because I remembered it. And I looked it up. And he says, uh, You know, it's interesting that uh, when you have it all, you realize there has to be more to life than this. That's what he said. And he kind of stopped the interviewer. And the interviewer asked him a, a follow up question because that wasn't the, kind of the direction the interview was taking. It was more, you know, look at how amazing your life is. It's like there's got to be more to life than this. And then the interview asks him, you know, almost the way he said it, maybe he has an answer to it. So the interviewer asks him a question and says, so, so what is that? And the sad thing is, he sits there and he says, I don't know. And you go, these are the people that we sometimes envy. And you actually get to the top, and I actually pity many of them, because the rest of the world just doesn't know how empty it is, so they spend their whole lives seeking to get that stuff. Thinking that if they get it, then they, then they won't feel empty. And the fact that they are pursuing something at least stops many of them from feeling empty. But those ones who get to the top realize that you can have it all and it's still empty. And you're still just a regular human being with all kinds of massive insecurities and emptiness and fears. So Christian, are you envying the people of this world? On the day when Jesus returns in power and glory, nobody's going to envy someone who doesn't know Jesus. You're not going to worry about, oh, it was unfair, I went through so much hard stuff. You're not going to worry about that. They're going to be in terror at Jesus' return. This is a real day that is coming. And they will call out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath." has come now i need to pause here for just a moment so seal six seal you know seals one through five you have you know what we looked at last week we have war and famine and disease and death and persecution and and then seal five you have the martyrs you know crying out for justice and then seal six we have this description of the day of the lord that's clearly the day of the lord it matches up with matthew 24 and tons and tons of descriptions in the old testament and I know some of you uh, who are chart people, okay? And by the way, I have no problems with chart people. I'm a chart person. I have made multiple charts of the book of Revelation over the years. I have scrapped them. I have tweaked them. I have yet persisted in making others and uh, continue never to be satisfied with any of them. But if you are a chart person, this doesn't make sense to you. How can seal six be the day of the Lord? Because what's the rest? If seal if six is the day of the Lord and the day when Jesus returns, it's awful day where he crushes the wicked, then what is happening in the rest of Revelation? I mean, obviously, this isn't in order. It doesn't fit in the sequence. So clearly, this can't be the day of the Lord. So let me tell you something. I have wrestled. I've done other things as well, but I have wrestled with this issue uh, on and off for about five years. And here's the conclusion I've come to. The book of Revelation is really, really hard sometimes. <laughs> And I've also just come to the realization, you cannot squeeze this book into an easy chart. I've not seen anyone succeed at doing it yet. Well, I have seen, no, I should say, I have seen lots of people make it into an easy chart. I haven't seen any yet that I think actually succeed in capturing what the book is saying. So I think, yes, I think there is a general sequence to the events in Revelation, but there's no question to me that seal 6, here's all I know. You look at seal 6, it's the day of the Lord. Does that fit in the overall timeline of how we want things to march from one thing to the end, and then at the end, Jesus comes back? It doesn't fit into the timeline. But here's the thing. I don't think John cares about a chart at this point. I think he's on a certain train of thought. And he gets ahead of himself, and then he's going to go back, and he's going to work it all out. But if you look at the train of thought, it actually makes total sense. If you don't think about the overall sequence, yes, if this is supposed to be an accounting of events from one to the next to the next to the next in the order they come, that would be a problem. But if you look at just the sequence of his thought in Revelation 6, it makes all the sense in the world. Because here's why. Seal 5. The martyrs cry out for justice, oh Jesus, come. And seal six is the answer to their prayers. And if he left it to the end of the book where it fits in the sequence, you might miss the fact that the day of the Lord and Jesus' second coming is in response to the cries of his people. So it actually makes sense. It doesn't need to be in a sequence. It makes sense within the flow of this particular thing of what he's doing. CO5, the martyrs cry out for justice. When Jesus returns in the day of the Lord to crush the wicked, you have to know that is absolutely an answer to the prayers of Jesus' suffering saints. And there is CO5. When he opened a fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, right? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then at the end there, he says, wait a little longer. We talked about that last week. Patience, wait a little longer. But then seal six shows us that God is going to answer their prayers, and the day of the Lord is the answer to their prayers. The imagery is violent, The imagery of these Day of the Lord uh, prophecies, by the way, when I say imagery, I don't mean it's not going to happen. I'm just talking about how it's described. These things actually will happen. It's not imagery in the sense that it's not true. They're actually seeing, the Day of the Lord, they're actually seeing something. The sun will go dark. The earth will shake when God comes back. As Jesus, and the kings of the earth, and they will physically shake and be terrified and all that sort of stuff. It's more violent than our sensibilities here in Canada in 2019, will kind of feel like, ooh, like, why can't you just come back and shake hands? Or even come back and yell. But coming back and shaking the earth and people hiding, that's, that sounds too, that's too much, okay? I want you to think again and put yourself again back into the shoes of the original hearers. These are people who are being oppressed by a demonic empire. Horrific things have already been done and will continue to be done by them, to them uh, in, in the na- under the reigns of various Caesars. So when John says Jesus is coming back, when he's coming back, he's not coming back to shake hands with these wicked systems that oppress people and, and enslaved millions. Again, I bring up the persecuted church a lot and I will continue to do that throughout the book of Revelation because this book, in many ways, can't be understood entirely without thinking about our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. I want you to think of right now, right now as I speak, we sit here comfortably. You may be down to coffee during worship, which is wonderful, okay? That maybe fueled you a little bit. For some of you, the coffee is your Holy Spirit. Without it, you have none of the fruits of the Spirit, right in the morning? (laughs) But right now as I speak and we sit here in comfortable chairs, you know, we have brothers and sisters in North Korea, a, a small smattering of them, some of them right now in labor camps, and when they get sent to a labor camp because they love Jesus... First of all, horrific things are done to them, some things that are, should, that I would never even mention up here in a pulpit, and their children are also put into a labor camp, and their children are also put into a labor camp, because in North Korea, it's, it's like a human-made hell. They actually pu- punish people off into the third generation. It's horrific. And when those people, if they can get their hands on a Bible ever, or if they have memorized this passage, or can ever squeak a look into the Bible, which we often take for granted, when they look into it and they read Revelation chapter 6, and they see the martyrs cry out for justice, and then they see Jesus come back and smash the wicked system which currently tyrannizes them. Is that not good news? And those people who suffer in Muslim countries, horrific things in Iran, Christians right now, in prisons in Iran, where Sexual abuse and torture are rampant against Christians. And in China, the communist government. Jesus is not coming back to shake hands with wickedness. He's coming back to destroy it. He's coming back in some ways like a mother bear. Now, this brings up another thing because as we read about this justice and it stirs something inside of us, this need because we're made in the image of God, this need for God to bring justice to the earth, this need for God to set the oppressed free. It can be very easy, though, to take that feeling of justice and become, you know, this sort of raging end-time prophet that, you know, speaks loudly and, and about, uh, you know, how, how much you want to see the world smash and Jesus coming back. And I want us to hold something in tension here on the one hand... We look forward. These passages are there for our encouragement. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return and smash the wicked. But on the other hand, what is our 100% duty but to love our enemies? Is that not true? We actually have to hold those two things in tension. One is we look forward to the day when God will smash the evil systems of this world. But on the other hand, we remember that in all things, we bless those who persecute us. Romans 12, verse 21 says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. We don't overcome evil with anger. We don't overcome evil with hate. We don't overcome evil with violence. I'm not talking there about a soldier in an army who's fighting for his country. That's a different thing, but I'm talking in the name of Christ. We don't overcome any of those. We turn the other cheek. We bless those who persecute us. Do you bless those who persecute you? Do you bless those who talk badly about you and cause you all kinds of problems? Do overcome evil with good. See, our job here's the thing, and it's very easy to understand whose job is what. You don't have to do listening prayer and think to yourself, maybe this is one of those cases where I need to take vengeance into my hands a little bit. It's actually 100% of the time we love our enemies look what the rest of this passage says. Uh, Romans chapter 12 here. It says this, behold, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. God's job is the wrath part because he is merciful and good and holy and only he can do that part righteously. Our job is to love our enemies and at the same time hold this tension. Yes, we long for the day when God will return, shake the earth and smash every evil system. Vengeance, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. The next time someone does bad to you, something bad to you, here's what you do. Okay, this is just from the Bible. This isn't me, this is from the Bible. Instead of going and talking to everybody about what they did bad to you, go and do something really nice to them. That's actually in the Bible. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We must hold this tension. As we read the book of Revelation, there is no question that God is going to crush Satan's kingdom. But at the same time, we love love, uh, people and we love our enemies. So you say, how do I do those two things? How do I, on the one hand, crave justice and love my enemy? How do I do two things at once? Let me make it easy for you. When you think of systems, it is never bad to pray against the system. It is never bad to want God's justice on a system. Never. So when we look out at the world and we see communist China, for example. Horrible things in China happening right now. Not just to Christians, but to their Muslim minority, to Buddhists, but to Christians as well. Certainly, uh, people being put in prison, tortured without trial. It's, like a, it's, a, it's a technological, you know, horror show, the way they're using technology to track people and find people. It's awful, awful, awful. And I look forward to the day when God is going to smash that government and its people can be free. That's okay. But the moment I see a picture of an individual Chinese communist, we need to pray, Jesus, open his eyes to know the gospel. Amen? Amen. When I see a Muslim country run by a Muslim government doing terrible things to women and to Christians and to other minorities and to homosexuals and and just all kinds of people. They torture them and do terrible things to them. When I look at that, I go, God, smash that evil system. But when I look at a Muslim, I think, Jesus, they need to just know Jesus. And there's lots of wonderful individual Muslims out there that are amazing. Isn't it true? So we love people That's how we hold this intention. Love your enemy, but certainly as we read Revelation, our hope is that Jesus is going to return. It's going to be amazing. So anyway, this now leads us into chapter 7 and into one of the most odd, dare I say, bizarre passages in the Bible. Many interpretations, uh, many speculations about this 144,000. Let's read it and we're going to find out that it all ties into everything we've been talking about today. Because there's no chapter break. There's no seal six happens and now a new chapter. It says in verse one, after this. It does not mean after this in the sense of a totally different thing happening. This is the same vision. It's just the next thing he sees in this same vision. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back. Now, we're going to come back to this next week. Next week, I'm going to come back to chapter seven. We're going to see more in here. But what I want you to see is uh, seal... Seal five, martyrs cry for justice. Seal six is the day of the Lord, and God is crushing the, 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 the wicked. And now I want you to see, though, but now we see these angels holding back the winds, okay? They're holding back the judgments is what we're seeing. That no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth, so hold back. Don't. It's not judgment time just yet. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, okay? So this is important. And all of this has to do with the seals we're reading because this is all part of the same thing. It's in between seal 6 and seal 7. All of this has to do with the seals. It's not not a new topic. That's why people have gotten off and done all kinds of weird things with the 144,000 is because we've treated it as its own chapter talking about something totally different. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, and on and so forth. You get the idea, okay? So again, now, uh, many people, and myself included, and it's not bad to speculate and have fun conversations about these things, but I feel like too many of us, have focused here on the wrong things. So because we we treat chapter 7 as it's all on its own, now we're studying what's going on with these 144,000 and we're not looking to what just came before it. And as a result, we concentrate on the last thing, on the wrong thing. So for example, this list of the 12 tribes is is an interesting list because it's different than any of the lists of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Now of course, right off the bat, that actually tells us less than you might think because do you know that in the Old Testament there's about a dozen different ways that the 12 tribes of Israel are listed? You say, how hard is it? There's 12 boys. There's only one way to list them. It's not that simple when it comes to Jacob's sons. See, remember when Joseph, uh, when Joseph died, he had two sons, right? He had Ephraim and Manasseh. They each became a tribe. So actually, there wasn't 12 tribes of Israel. There was actually 13 some of you are gone. mind blow, all my devotions and everything I knew about the Bible is gone, right? No, it's a small detail, but there's 13 tribes. So there's always someone left off in the Old Testament list, and for various reasons, Levi is often uh, left off. Sometimes then they put Joseph in, and they, leave, and they put Levi in, and then they leave Ephraim and Manasseh out. In this case, They have Joseph and Manasseh. They leave out Ephraim and they leave out Dan. The fact that they left out Dan made uh, a bunch of Christians for a few hundred years think the Antichrist was going to be a Jewish person from the tribe of Dan. All kinds of odd things come out of it, okay? So we focus on that and we totally forget that this is coming out of Seal 6 So here, next week we're going to come back to these 144,000 because actually... There's many similarities here to a military census list in the Old Testament, which tells us lots about what John is getting across here. So I'm not gonna develop this point at all, but here's just what I want you uh, to understand is that I really believe very strongly, and I'll show you more of this next week, but I really believe strongly the point of this is not to say that only 144,000 people are sealed. The point of this is that all of God's people are sealed. And then it makes absolute sense Coming out of seal 5, 6, and now this explanation all makes sense. Seal 5, the martyrs cry out for justice. Seal 6, God says, I'm answering your prayers the day of the Lord, I'm going to smash the wicked. And now all the righteous go, Ooh, like we're living there too. Like if you smash the wicked, it sure feels like we're going to get smashed. And the first explanation is, No, 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 stop before there's any judgments. The four angels are holding back the thing. I'm going to put a seal on all my servants. I'm going to make a distinction between my people and Satan's people. And the whole point is that we are protected. That is the point of this. The point of this is not, you know, books have been written about the 144,000, different things they're going to do in the tribulation, which is complete speculation because the book of Revelation tells us almost nothing about what they're going to do. Now, I don't even doubt that there may be in the future some special group of, you know, 144,000 set apart at some point. But the primary message of this Passage is to encourage us in light of seal number six. Does that make sense? And this is a really good time to just talk about something which I'm going to bring up over and over again as we go throughout the book of Revelation. There's something we have to do as we're interpreting Revelation. We have to constantly balance future and present. Certainly, in the future, there is going to be a specific fulfillment of many of the prophecies of Revelation, a specific fulfillment of an Antichrist empire and Jesus clashing. Those things will certainly happen. But do you know that that's actually not even the primary point of the book of Revelation? The primary point of the book of Revelation is pastoral. Every chapter must be interpreted in a sense that it also applies to us today. And that's its primary meaning. And then it also has this fulfillment aspect that will be fulfilled, but it was written to a people in the first century to encourage them. It wasn't just written to give them a random prophecy about something that would never affect them. It was written to encourage them and teach them in the moment. That's why it says, blessed are you if you hear the words of this book about Revelation and obey. How can you obey something that's only about the future? You can't. So the book has to be for those first century Christians and for all of us who have ever lived first. And it has to be understood in such a way, the moment it loses its connection to the present, you're probably on shaky ground even for what you're saying about the future. And we'll see that more. There certainly is a future fulfillment of many of these prophecies. But in the meantime, we can't get so lost in the future that we forget that this is actually about now. God's people are safe. So, let's review the context. And I'm going to finish this message by showing you a parallel with the Exodus. But let's review the context. Seals 1 through 5, war, famine, disease, persecution, death. Great news. Seal number five, the martyrs cry out for justice. Seal six, we fast forward to the day of the Lord and God says, I'm answering that prayer. This is my answer. I will come to earth and smash the wicked. Chapter seven, interlude between seals six and seven, 144,000 is comfort. God seals his people and we are protected from wrath. Now let me show you that this is a big theme in Revelation and the entire Bible. One of the parallels I've mentioned already, but that you're going to see throughout the book of Revelation, is the parallel between uh, what is being described in the book of Revelation and what happened in the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh. What Jesus is doing in Revelation, rescuing his people from Satan's kingdom, is the same thing that he did in the Old Testament when he rescued his people from Pharaoh. Now, I want you to think about being the people of Israel in in Old Testament Egypt. And you're caught between two titanic powers. You're under, completely under the power of Pharaoh, who is far more powerful than you, and you cannot escape his grip. Now, God comes, and of course, God is infinitely more powerful than both Pharaoh and Israel, but from the perspective of Israel, they're both just way more powerful. Now, God say, comes and he says, I am going to deliver you from Pharaoh, and now, you're kind of caught in between, aren't you? And he says, I'm going to visit terrible plagues on Egypt, and I wonder if the if the Israelites are going, huh, uh, uh, we live in Egypt too, right? It's like in those movies where you've got you know a hostage being held by some bad guy, and then you've got a, per- a sharpshooter, and they're trying to shoot the bad guy, and then, and you know if you're that person, it's like I hope you're good with that because you know don't miss, right? But like here we're living in Israel, you're gonna put plagues on Egypt, like wow. Yes, deliver us, but let's be careful, right? Now, you know what's amazing about the story of of the Exodus is, and it's actually a theme that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New, is that God is able to both destroy the wicked and protect his people at the same time. And we see this in the plagues. For example, I'll show you one plague here, the fourth one, the plague of flies, Exodus 8, verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. Okay? And then there's a description. It gets really flyy, really bad. Verse 22, but on that day, and there's two things I've got underlined here. I love these both. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, just right in the heart of Egypt. Then he says, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, and this is one of my favorite lines, I will put a division between my people and your people. I love that. How does it feel to be one of God's my people? God says to Pharaoh, I'm going to put a division between my people and your people. By the way, the book of Revelation is all about that division. There's a division between the people of the earth, Satan's kingdom, and God's servants. I'll put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. The Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. I want you to see so many of the parallels here. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites cry out to God for deliverance. In seal 5, the martyrs cry out to God for justice. Then in seal 6, God says, this is my answer. The day of the Lord, I'm going to crush the wicked with with a mighty hand. And then in the Exodus, we see God speaks through Moses, I'm going to send 10 mighty plagues on you. And then after that, in the Exodus, we see God send those plagues, but at the same time as he sends those plagues, he protects his people. And what we see in chapter 7 is, God's going to bring the day of the Lord, but his people are sealed. The Israelites could suffer from Pharaoh's persecutions, just like we suffer from the devil's persecutions and people's persecutions here, but the, but the Israelites did not suffer from God's wrath, just like we are sealed from God's wrath. Those are some very important things, and it's a theme that's picked up elsewhere in Scripture as well. I'm going to finish with this passage. Peter preached a very similar message to what I'm talking about right here in 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah. So on the one hand, he didn't spare the ancient world, but he did protect Moses in the middle of it, or Noah in the middle of it. Not Moses, Noah. But see how he does both at one time, right? He can destroy the earth and he can save Noah at the same time. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's one example. Now Peter gives a second example. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed the essential conduct of the wicked. And now he brings this point to a conclusion. He says, then the Lord knows how to do two things. Rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So, what's one thing Jesus wants you to take home from this message today? What's one thing? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? First of all, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins? There is an actual day coming when he will return to earth. And you want to be one of his, my people, not one of the Pharaoh people. You want to be part where he says, I will put a division between my people and your people. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you're one of those Christians who's very afraid about the future. You're afraid of the news, you're afraid of the book of Revelation, you're afraid of anything that's titled the end times. You thought about skipping church during this series, except you knew that it would take me probably almost a year to get through the book of Revelation, you thought that was too long to skip church, so here you are. (laughs) You think, I don't like reading these things, I don't like hearing about these things. And you're afraid. I want you to hear a message that is preached throughout the book of Revelation, that is, you are sealed. We will all go through tough things because of the sin and wickedness in this world, but you are sealed from God's wrath. God is actually speaking to you today and telling you it's not his will for you to be afraid. You can bring that fear to him. Or maybe you're just struggling with a bit of envy in the world right now. You're looking around at people who don't know Jesus, and it just feels like they've got a better life than you do. The Bible, God's word, is an important book to regularly be into because it brings us back to a sound mind. Really, because ultimately it's insane. To envy someone who's going to end up on the wrong side of Jesus on the day of the Lord and all of us as Christians need to be encouraged if this day truly is coming and it is we need to be telling our loved ones about it we need to be telling our coworkers. we need to be praying for people to know Jesus we need to be praying for our enemies and those who hurt us that they would come to know Jesus amen I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes Heavenly Father Would you put the reality of this day in our hearts? This day is coming. It's not just a theoretical day. It's a real day. We want to be ready for this day. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we go out of here and, you know, live insane lives. It just means that we take a step towards you this week. We need, to med- we need to spend time meditating on your word and getting out of that world envy that we sometimes get trapped in. We need to remind ourselves of reality. And Lord, we desperately need to love our enemies. Wherever there is inf- unforgiveness or bitterness in this room right now, Jesus, would you show us the names of people that we're holding offense against? And it's time for us to forgive. It is time for us to forgive. And it's time for us to begin to lift up the lost, people in our lives who don't know you. We want to pray for them to know you. In your precious, powerful name we pray, amen.